I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. C.S. Lewis said that. His words are written on the floor in Poets' Corner of Westminster Abbey. We visited there on a recent trip to England, finding Lewis's memorial next to markers for Tennyson, Dylan Thomas, and T.S. Eliot. On another day of our trip, we spent time at St. Paul's Cathedral. This morning's epistle, Paul appeals to Christians in Corinth, who are relatively rich, for financial support for Christians in Jerusalem who had fallen on hard times. Christ is the Son, and Paul asked the Corinthians to consider his appeal by that light. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This analogy Paul captures in one sentence two dimensions of what Bishop Curry so famously called the Jesus movement in his royal wedding homily. The dimensions are vertical and horizontal. Vertically, eternally, Jesus is God's movement down into a world fallen on hard times, sharing and spreading riches of divinity, grace, forgiveness, healing, wisdom, immortality. As Karl Barth describes it, God saw the world in, in need and he didn't pass us by like the priest and the Levite did the man who had fallen among thieves on the road to Jericho. He sent his beloved son to share our plight and lift our load. God descends so that humanity can rise. That's the Jesus movement in its vertical dimension. Historically, it was the start of something. Christ came not as a tourist, but as a king. Not only to feed, but to show us how to fish. Not only to share our plight, but also to change it. Those changes are the Jesus movement on its horizontal axis. axis. So, like the downburst from a summer thundercloud, love comes down, and when it hits the ground, it spreads out in all directions. Other stops on our trip included Blenheim Palace, where Winston Churchill was born, and Highgate Cemetery, where Karl Marx was buried. One of Marx's mottos was, from each according to his ability to each according to her need. That sounds like Paul, but the resemblance was short-lived because Marx viewed the world by a different light, working toward a different end by means hostile to faith and opposite to freedom. Churchill's father was the Duke of Marlborough. The first Duke of Marlborough had saved England from a French invasion in the Battle of Blenheim on August the 13th, 1704. Churchill grew up in the palace on that battlefield, a formative environment for a boy who would grow up and go to war to save the world from tyranny. He was born and ready for the role. Winston imparted fortitude to a people who had fallen on hard times. He according to his great ability and they according to their desperate need. Churchill teamed up with Marxists to defeat the Nazis. 
the news photographs of Churchill and Roosevelt with Stalin, all three laughing like old chums, seemed strange to everybody. When someone challenged Churchill for paying a compliment to Stalin at Parliament, he answered, well, he probably didn't say well. <laughs> well, if Hitler invaded hell, I would make at least a favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. <laughs> Churchill was Christian, but he would have found something hilarious to say to a suggestion that he was part of something called the Jesus Movement. He was much more conspicuously part of the Imperial British Movement and proud of it. In England, those movements, Jesus's and Queen Elizabeth I's, had long exist existed side by side. For a time in England, Marx's movement made some headway. At Highgate Cemetery, his gravestone still stands as an advertisement for it. Workers of all lands unite, it says, with carved large letters. There was a young man looking at the marker at the same time we were. I couldn't read his mind, but he looked like a believer. There was a great television series that ended last month about a true believer called The Americans. The Americans were a married couple, both undercover agents of the KGB, born and raised in Soviet Russia and planted in Washington, D.C. This was the, Re the Reagan era, the Cold War's climax. The spies had two children, born American and raised not knowing who their parents really were or what they did. When Paige, the eldest, finds out, she joins their movement. Elizabeth, the mother, is the true believer. Her communism is devout, and she will lie, cheat, kill, and do whatever else the cause requires. Philip, the father, is deadly, but ambivalent. He likes it here. In the last season, Philip and Elizabeth's cover is blown, and they take Paige and flee to the border to escape. Escape means leaving Henry, their younger child, behind, alone, bereft. Their decision is that leaving him is bad, but taking him is worse. They choose the lesser of two evils. That it is an evil, no one doubts. As television viewers, we see it on the parents' anguished faces and feel it in our gut. You see where I'm going? In America, the real one, not the show. We found something everyone agrees on. Depriving children's of their children of their parents is an evil. When it happens by accident or illness, it is natural evil. When done by choice, it is a moral one. In other words, a sin. As newspaper readers or television viewers, we've been seeing pictures of it at our southern border. Almost all of us, left, right, center, feel the wrongness of it in our gut. Collectively, we decided, given hard choices, let's find a greater good or even just a lesser evil quickly. This was moral instinct, something that we didn't have to go to school or church to learn. Our faith expands that moral instinct. It reaches higher than our gut. For example, in faith, our inborn concern for children's care and nurture has been expanded into our strong idea about sex, marriage, and family. 
which is that what makes sex safe is love, and love requires commitment. This expansion is security for children and also for women. Gone are the Hollywood casting couch and college date break. These days, that strong idea is thought to be old-fashioned when, in fact, it was and is tremendous social progress. Love come down and spreading out in all directions. Paul writes, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of equality, your abundance at the present time should supply their want so that their abundance should supply your want. The tone and content of that comment are politically important. No doubt there were those in Corinth whose condition was no better than that of the Christians in Jerusalem. That's why the gifts that Paul is asking for are voluntary. For those in our country who are also in want and who feel burdened by free trade and open immigration, the moral calculus is different than it is for those of us who prosper. Pocketbook considerations enter moral calculations and both play out politically in a democracy. We've let it turn ugly but it can and should be beautiful. This is life and freedom. As you know, this year I'm reading Martin Luther King. King also took on special reading projects. As a student, he devoted Christmas break one year to reading Marx. King shared Marx's low opinion of our economic system. It was appalling to him that a country so wealthy could have people so poor, blacks in urban ghettos, whites in rural Appalachia. Opposite to Marx, King was a champion for both faith and freedom. God, he said, unites the opposites. He writes, My reading of Marx convinced me that truth is found neither in Marxism nor in traditional capitalism. Each represents a partial truth. Historically, capitalism failed to see the truth in collective enterprise. And Marxism failed to see the truth in individual enterprise. 19th century capitalism failed to see that life is social. Marxism failed and still fails to see that life is individual and personal. The kingdom of God is neither the thesis of individual enterprise nor the antithesis of collective enterprise, but a synthesis which reconciles the truth of both. I'm reading King after a year of reading Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln had a much higher opinion than King of free market economics. The founding proponents of free market economics in the 18th century and later ones like Lincoln believed first and foremost that the case for it was moral. The system would let people thrive through ingenuity and hard work and lift the whole society to a better standard of living. Lincoln knew though that free markets alone aren't enough to make a great nation. His religion was Churchillian Jesus' movement talk was not his style, and he listened to preachers' political prescriptions respectfully but skeptically. But Lincoln had faith, and he believed it essential to the American experiment, saying religion's moral training, and I quote, the hopes and consolations of the Christian faith were needed to elevate and sanctify the conscience of the nation. 
when we forget that our market system was designed with moral purposes in mind or drain faith from politics, we lose the beauty of them and the greater part of freedom. During the Blitz, when the Germans bombed London every night with a special interest in destroying St. Paul's Cathedral, Churchill would call the cathedral every morning and ask whoever answered the phone, does she still stand? He feared the loss of St. Paul's would drain the spirit from the city. The same can be asked with even higher stakes of St. Paul's faith in Christ. Does she still stand? She does here. In faith, we know ourselves as holding more potential than we thought. Touched by God, we are wiser, stronger, better than we were. That improvement is the Jesus movement in our souls. In faith, we know ourselves as morally responsible. God saw the world in need and he didn't pass us by. Paul tells us, pay it forward. That assignment is the Jesus movement in the world. In faith, we know God is morally responsible and greater, stronger, better than we thought. For example, Jairus' 12-year-old daughter is at the point of death. Desperate, Jairus asks the Lord for help, and Jesus answers yes. But apparently the girl dies before Jesus and her father reach her. She'd been cruelly separated from her parents at the final border. At that border, Christ reaches through and brings her back. Parent and child are reunited. Anguished faces turn ecstatic. That reversal is the Jesus movement in our hearts.